Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to A New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I am here with Asha Gupta, and we are going to talk about his limbic retraining program. I know more and more of us uh, working in the functional medicine slash integrative medicine space are moving towards using these tools with our are complex patients that we, uh, despite our best efforts, don't seem to be able to budge. So I'm really excited to kind of drill down into uh, what Ashok has discovered in his work. Background on him, he is a speaker, filmmaker. He's a health practitioner who's dedicated his life to supporting people through chronic illness and to achieve their potential. Um, he suffered himself from chronic fatigue syndrome uh, 25 years ago when he was studying at Cambridge. Um, and then through his really, really his own research he studied, um, he published an interesting hypothesis we'll talk about. Uh, he got better and set up a clinic using his method. Um, he's published on this method. I know that there, uh, there was a 2020 trial that we'll chat about uh, using his method in uh, fibromyalgia, uh, and he continues to research. He'll, he'll talk to us about that. Um, he, in 2017, he published an app uh, called The Meaning of Life Experiment, a 30-day program of videos and meditations to discover more happiness, meaning, and to uncover your purpose in life. It actually, that, Ashok, that sounds like a great app, a useful app, particularly right now. Uh, welcome to New Frontiers. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Great to be here. So listen, I want to hear your story. Your story is incredibly interesting. So you were, you were uh, studying in Cambridge 25 years ago. What were you, what were you studying there? Uh, so I was actually studying economics, uh, believe it or not. So, <laughs> uh, and that's seen as a, a discipline which is very different to, I suppose, medicine or psychology. But in fact, I learned a lot from uh, my methods and understanding of economics in terms of 
how cycles work and how they might work between the brain and the body as well. So yeah, that was, that was my undergrad degree. Oh, isn't that fascinating? And you got, and, and during that journey, actually, I can see the connection with economic, I mean, economics, like, especially as we move towards these systems models of medicine. So, I mean, I could see your, you know, your skill set, you know, being useful in, in, in what you're doing and putting together this program. Um, but you were in school, you were an undergrad and you got sick. Uh, that's right. So like many of us who've got involved in this particular profession or this particular area, we've often done it from our own experiences. And um, so I went to India. Uh, you know, I was somebody who was uh, burning the candle at both ends at university. Yeah. So I was partying hard. I was studying hard. I was pretty stressed out. I knew that I wasn't taking care of myself, uh, well, retrospectively at least. Um, and I went to India and caught some kind of stomach bug. Um, and then I came back to university for my third year. Um, but I got worse and worse and worse. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I had symptoms of extreme fatigue and exhaustion. I couldn't exercise. Um, the slightest type of activity would put me in bed for a couple of days. And I had a post-exertional malaise and the sore throats and a whole host of different symptoms, lots of gastro symptoms uh, as well. And essentially, I was housebound, often, uh, you know, not really feeling like doing anything. I tried so many different things and went to see so many specialists, but no one really helped me at the time. Well, yeah. tell me, like, can you tell me, God, I know, I know that story. <laughs> I really know that story myself. It's, it's incredibly fascinating. It's, it's really the story that brought me here as well. Um, but what, so what were some of the diagnoses that you encountered or were you just referred to, um, not just, but referred to psychiatry? I mean, just, I'm, I'm curious what, what you might have gone through before you ended up piecing together what you needed to do? Uh, yeah, so I, I was formally diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and ME eventually, but that mm -hmm. was after going through the system of saying, oh, right, you've got depression, so you need to take these antidepressants, and I took mm -hmm. those, and they made me feel worse. Obviously, I looked at diet, made some dietary changes, which, you know, did improve things a little, but uh, didn't really get to the, the root of it. So I went through the system, the kind of mainstream medical system, and eventually did get a formal diagnosis. And at that point, it was pretty much well, we don't know what causes it. We don't know how people get better or if anyone gets better. So you may have this for the rest of your life. And how was... did they diagnose you? Did they actually use any laboratory or did they just, was it just, was it a clinical diagnosis? It was a diagnosis of exclusion. So obviously they did all the tests and found that all the tests were pretty normal. Um, and at that time, you know, there weren't specific tests for this kind of thing in terms of right. markers or anything like that. Um, so yeah, that, that was really there, the kind of default diagnosis for me. Okay, so there you are. You're, you've you've been diagnosed officially. You still feel terrible. I'm assuming you, you know you're still forcing yourself through school. Um, what then? Well, then I actually had to take a year out uh, okay. because it was pretty severe. And then I went back the following year, but I. Yeah, as you say, it was a struggle to really study and try and get through, whilst also on the side trying to just understand my condition. And that's where I was introduced to uh, some work by Professor Joseph Ledoux on the brain neurology of emotion and the brain neurology uh, specifically of um, you know pain syndromes and uh, fatigue syndromes. So I studied medical papers, I studied uh, various books, a lot of stuff in the literature and especially brain neurology and came up with a hypothesis uh, in 1999 uh, which got published as you know in medical hypotheses in 2002. And this hypothesis was based on my own internal experiences of the condition, as well as 
I suppose, extending or expanding on uh, some of the brain neurology systems around PTSD and around emotion, but applying it to physical conditions, essentially. And uh, I was able to, once I'd done that and done that research, I was able to rapidly, anecdotally and ad hoc, uh, reprogram my brain, retrain my brain and get myself back to full health. And I've been fully healthy uh, since then. And so talk about what you found, what your hypothesis was and what you started to do in your first, you know, kind of N of one experiment. Sure. So if I can just um, kind of give a background to what this hypothesis actually is. Um, So I start with the biggest question of all, why are we here? (laughs) And I love that question because it can be answered in so many ways. So we won't answer it in a philosophical way, but let's answer it in a scientific way. We're here because over millions of years of evolution, this nervous system and this immune system that we've inherited has developed itself and adapted to its environment to ensure survival. So we are survival machines because of all the previous animals and plants and everything that they've been through to adapt to the environment to get us to where we are right now. So the priority of our brains and our bodies is to ensure survival, to pass on genes to the next generation. So from the pure kind of purest scientific perspective, we can answer that question of why are we here? And that then helps us understand what may cause ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, and then fibromyalgia, even long haul COVID, and the whole range of these types of chronic conditions. So I, I believe that what happens is when we, let's, let's take the example of flu. When we have flu, it is actually life-threatening. And obviously, because of the experiences of long haul COVID, uh, oh, sorry, uh, of COVID-19, more, more people are aware that actually many people do die every year from uh, things like mm-hmm. flu, things like COVID-19. And um, if we are in a stress state or a weakened state, then our immune system is weakened. And we know that from obviously psychoneuroimmunology. And therefore, it can take us longer to fight off a virus like COVID-19, mm-hmm. like the flu. And in that process, in that, in that system, I believe that a malfunction occurs in the brain. Right? Now, it's a malfunction from our perspective, but from our brain's perspective, it's the right thing to do. And what I believe happens is the brain says, we are only just managing to overcome this virus. What happens if this virus surges again within us, overtakes us and threatens survival? This is the ultimate danger. Therefore, the logical thing to do is to overstimulate immune responses and nervous system responses in order to protect the body and ensure survival. Because the body cares more about your survival than your well-being. And your happiness. Survival is the number one priority. And um, we know that this is happening in COVID-19. So unfortunately, the people who've passed away from COVID-19, the majority have been through things like cytokine storms, where our own body's immune system has overinflamed the lungs and then threatened survival. Um, So we know that the body can get into the state of wanting to over respond. And once that happens, I believe that because the brain is in this heightened state of trigger happy uh, responses, it starts learning new defensive responses to otherwise neutral stimuli. Now, what I mean by that is the very symptoms in the body, such as fatigue, exhaustion, the sore throats, those become conditioned triggers as evidence that we are still in danger as evidence that the body is still under attack from that virus or that bacterial infection. 
So the brain takes in incoming stimuli from the body, the symptoms, interprets those as dangerous and representative of, of us still being in an infected state, then triggers the nervous system and immune system. So, uh, you know, all those inflammatory markers go up, so the cytokines, the, uh, you know, the tightness in the muscles, the body is going to this hyperdefense state, which then causes inflammation throughout the body and the brain and the gut and um, all the downstream symptoms from that perspective. So there can be uh, gastric symptoms that occur as a result of that. Uh, there can be uh, effects on the mitochondria, you know, people talking about the cell danger response, all of those downstream effects, more allergies and sensitivities, um, as well as mental effects like cognitive difficulties, memory problems, sleep issues, autonomic dysfunction. And those downstream symptoms then loop back to a hypersensitive, hypervigilant brain, which magnifies, which magnifies those signals interprets them as dangerous and re-triggers that chronic sympathetic arousal and the immune dysfunction, the oxidative stress, all of these different uh, mediums, once again, causing the downstream symptoms. There may also be mast cell activation as well. So the body and the brain get caught in a vicious cycle, like a very powerful game of tennis, where the brain says, I'm in danger, I must trigger defensive responses. And the body says, I'm experiencing all of these symptoms. What is going on? This is dangerous. And then throws the ball back to the brain to say, do something about this. The brain says, well, this is evidence we're still in danger and then creates ongoing chronic symptoms that then can last for months, if not years. And, the, and it's really a side conversation from the original insult, which I think in some cases, not all, but certainly some cases was probably relatively mild. Mm -hmm. I agree. The original insult, the original thing that triggered off this vicious cycle may have completely disappeared by now, right. but it's left a legacy in the brain, which is this hyperdefensive response. Right, right. And as I discovered this cycle, I could, it's, it's not that these conditions are psychological, and I want to be very, very clear about this. They're yeah. happening in the unconscious brain, and these conditioning effects can occur without any conscious awareness at all. Now, but once they happen, there is usually no way of accessing this unconscious response because it's a, it's a survival response, a protective response. The same as if you're putting your hand on a hot plate and your hand immediately moves off. It's a, a survival instinct, as it were. But what we've been able to do or at the time that I was understanding this in my own brain, on the periphery of consciousness, it was the ability to recognize some of those unconscious danger signals that normally wouldn't be processed or we wouldn't do anything with, to recognize those subtle signals of danger and to be able to retrain them using neuroplasticity techniques. Yeah. yeah. Give me, can you give me an example? How did you do that? Like what, well, would, what would be an example of the danger that you might be able to just kind of tune into yeah go ahead well as an example um because the brain is in this heightened state it will prioritize um emotions and thinking patterns which represent danger yep so many people with these conditions will also have an overlap of anxiety or certainly a background worry or concern so it's recognizing that type of signaling or another type of signaling is the hyper uh, the brain will become hyper vigilant to the symptoms Yep. So you'll be trying to think about something else or distract your mind, but your brain will keep going back to, 
well, how am I feeling now? There'll be a constant um, monitoring of, of the body because we are in danger. So that would be another example of, uh, you know, a signaling. We may um, recognize a feeling of dread, a feeling of what happens if I have this forever. So the ultimate right. fear of the unconscious brain, especially the amygdala and the insula, which I'm sure we'll talk about, the ultimate fear is that we will remain in this uh, experience forever and there's no way out of it, essentially. That's the ultimate fear that we, we all face in many different aspects of our lives. Right. So you began to kind of pull the thread around these almost unconscious thoughts, bring them up to consciousness? Become more aware of them at a conscious level and practice that process. Yes. And once again, what we're saying is that these aren't these aren't psychological process per, processes per se. And it's not that these are uh, thoughts per se, but they're unconscious signals that then we begin to become more aware of and form patterns that we can then retrain. Right. And an example of this would be um, phantom limb pain, which I don't, I'm, I'm sure you mm -hmm. may, have, yep. may have come across, um, yep. where war veterans have come back from war zones and they've had their legs amputated or an arm amputated, but their brain is still receiving signals as if that part of the body still exists. Yeah. And they use very interesting and novel what we would call brain retraining or neuroplasticity techniques to repeatedly train the brain that look there is no limb there there is no longer a need to magnify signaling from that part of the body because it no longer exists now i wouldn't call that a psychological process i would call that a brain rewiring process or a neuroplasticity sure. process and so it is in the same way here that we're training the brain out of um these unconscious de defense responses that it's got stuck into right Right. It's extraordinary. So just going back to you, you're completely stressed out. So you were, you know, when you were in school, you're in this, you're in a, you're existing in this fight or flight um, place, you know, just as a response to the stressors of pushing yourself in school and partying, et cetera. And so you're, so it's like you're vulnerable to, 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 to this neuroplasticity um, dysfunction. And then you go to India, you get what should be, you know, a relatively acute kind of brief illness, it sounds like. And instead, it just throws you into this loop tape um, of, di of, of difficulty, really, for years. Is that, would you say that's, that's correct? Yes, that's exactly a good reading of it. It's um, when we are in weakened states, we are more prone or the brain is more prone to learning new conditioning events. And an example of this is uh, we know that what primes people for these conditions um, are actually potentially when they've had more adverse childhood experiences. Right. Yep. And right. as a result of that, we know that the amygdala, which is our kind of fear center, um, is more primed to defensive responses. Now, the amygdala always used to be associated with psychological responses. But in the last 20 years or so, we've started linking the amygdala to pain responses, uh, yeah. to immune responses. So what's really interesting is in traditional medicine, we split these areas of medicine into di different departments. But as far as the brain is concerned, it doesn't care whether you have a biological threat or an emotional threat. It's the same brain structures creating defensive uh, responses. And I just want to say, you know, you're talking about one being in a weakened state, but paradoxically, you know, simultaneously, there's an incredible hypervigilance occurring 
So it's both of those together that allow, it seems, you know, that allow, you know, this, this, this sympathetic dominant hypervigilant slash, you know, perhaps immunologically and really, and neurologically weakened. It's like sort of into this little, into this seeming paradox that kind of allows the full disruption to occur in this, right? Would you agree with that? I would. And what's really interesting is that uh, we may think of the immune system as being on or off, but actually the more that the immune system is on unnecessarily, the weaker we become That's right. and the less likely we are to be able to deal with real threats. Right. right. That's right. That's right. And yeah. the example that I give, the analogy people love is, uh, I don't know if you're a fan of Game of Thrones. <laughs> <I don't> <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually, I mean, I'm sure I would be, but I, I have to honestly admit I haven't seen even a single episode. But yeah, go ahead. Other okay. everybody else has. I'm sure. I'm sure many <laughs> people have. So the um, essentially, you've got uh, the idea of kingdoms and a castle. Let's say. So imagine you are the king or the queen of the castle. And you have to defend the castle and make sure everyone's safe and all the population is safe within the castle. And you have an army and a navy. So the army is the nervous system and the navy is the immune system. Now, when there is a threat coming over the hill. And let's say the whole kingdom is weakened because there's been a famine or a drought or something that's weakened uh, the army, the navy, the castle. Suddenly there's an army invading. Now, the army and the navy have to really be on high alert and fight off the invading army. So they go off and do that. But now they're exhausted. Yeah. And they're so traumatized by the experience of nearly being overwhelmed that the army and navy decide to be on high alert every moment of every day, using up all the resources of the castle and the kingdom. Right. So then what happens is just a, a little girl or a little boy walking over that hill suddenly gets the army ready to respond and they start throwing arrows and using up once again all the resources of the kingdom. But they're missing the army that's coming over from another angle. So then some people are sent over to the other hill to go and defend against the other army that's coming in. But you can see by being over responsive, the immune system becomes less effective. And then opportunistic viruses and infections start flourishing within the body, causing secondary amount of symptoms. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It's just wildly complex and it's so interesting. Like it just makes me think about, and then I want to talk, I want to get into a drill down on your, on your program, but um, I mean, of course, in, you know, into this environment, we've got uh, the immune system is turned up, which is a massive protein wasting process. So in order to generate, in order for these, these army and Navy guys to exist, right, they're going to break down muscle <laughs> to have some nutrients. So they're destroying the body to fight, fight fight the the little girl who's you know this who's coming over the hill this sort of benign quote invader um and then and so the, so their nutrients and their amino acids are being spent and 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 any drop of you know glucocorticoids endogenous glucocorticoids are going to be you know released but only for a period so they're going to attempt to sort of inhibit this over aggressive immune system but it's you know, it's only going to be effective in the short term. And then, of course, it's going to be involved in breaking down tissue. And then there's going to be some, you know, level of fatigue or inability for glucocorticoid 
response to be effective. Um, and then we, we, of course, concurrently into this see the gut damage and microbiome damage and intestinal mm -hmm. permeability. And, you know, are they eating? What are they eating? Are they, you know, eating cleanly? Or is there some background toxin exposure? Are they living in a, you know, in a healthy environment, et cetera, et cetera. So just almost an exquisite cascade of, you know, multifactorial um, confounders, I think, can come into this to further create, uh, you know, really a cacophonous symphony of imbalance. Would you, would you say that's true? I couldn't have put it more poetically myself. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. This is so, what you just, yeah, what you described those. Yeah. I, I well, I just want to say one other piece. So, so because I practice functional medicine, you know, as do a lot of us listening, and we are good at doing rebuilding. So we can analyze the micronutrients. We can repair a gut, you know, exquisitely effectively. We can do a lot. We know that the immune system is going to be inducing like a sarcopenic type of response, and you know, dysglycemia and insulin resistance, etc. So we know that we're actually really good at turning those things around. So, so really restoring some order to this cacophonous sym uh, symphony and getting our people better to an extent, really to a profound extent, you know, considering they often don't get, you know, better in the, in the greater medical model. However, what you're doing and what you, you know, your own experience, what you walked yourself through and, you know, and then figured out is something that, you know, I'm going to admit, I certainly have struggled with this final piece. And I think that that's why a lot of clinicians have come to uh, using your tools and actually why I wanted to talk to you. I was uh, referred to you by um, a group out who, who, who interviewed you out in, in Australia. So, um, is that, would you say that that's true? And, and then I, and then I want to just, I want to know everything about your program as I'm sure everybody listening does, but go ahead. <laughs> respond sure. to that. Let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. Hi everybody. It's Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. I know a lot of you out there are practitioners like me, helping patients heal using functional medicine to get the root cause of illness. A starting point for many of us uh, is using laboratory testing. In fact, using sophisticated, uh, specialized laboratory testing. I did my postdoc uh, specifically in this testing and have been using it in clinical practice um, ever since. And so to that end, I'm excited to tell you about Rupa Health. Rupa Health allows us to order over 20 labs from a single online portal. That's right. You can just access easily 20 different specialty tests that you're using all of the time and probably juggling kits and your office staff are overwhelmed and you're explaining test kits to patients, et cetera, et cetera. You can now order easily your Dutch tests, your Vibrant America, Genova, Great Plains, and more from this single space. On average, Rupa makes ordering and managing lab testing 90% faster. I'll say that again, 90% faster letting you simplify the process of getting the functional tests you need and giving more time to focus on patients. I cannot tell you what a huge, huge, huge solution this is to 
a challenging juggle. So go to rupahealth.com and sign up for uh, free or schedule a live demo with the team. That's rupahealth, R-U-P-A, health.com. Now let's get back to this month's episode. So yeah, we're getting a lot of functional medical uh, medicine doctors, integrative doctors who are prescribing our program now because they're seeing the profound effects and it also supports their model um, as well. So if you have the two things going on in parallel, because we're not dogmatic, we, we, we say, you know, find as many things, you know, that support your healing. So it can be a great parallel and support the recovery and accelerate the recovery of, of patients. So I, I will say that definitely when we are treating patients with you know supplements the nutrients the enzymes you know balancing the biome these are all powerful things to do and what they're doing is they sometimes actually cause some brain retraining to occur because as the body gets better from treating the downstream symptoms the brain gets the message that actually what we thought was a chronic condition and therefore we are in supreme danger is beginning to ease therefore perhaps we're not in the danger situation that we thought we were. Do you see? So actually treating the symptoms can create an unconscious state of brain retraining as well. Yeah. And what, what we're doing is we're saying we're standing on the bridge and we're seeing people drowning in the river. Yeah. So we jump in and we pull them out of the river and we think, great, we pulled them out of the river, but then there's more people in the river. So we jump in the river again, but no one's asking the question, Who's throwing them in the river upstream in the first place? Right. Yep. Why are these people's or these patients' bodies going into these altered states in the first place? Why is the system getting disrupted? And so I think that's the fascinating piece is rather than look at the localized level, the localized inflammation or what's going on in the gut. Let's go to the centerpiece, the brain, where the action, I believe, is really happening, where why is the brain going into this altered state? Actually, there's a perfectly rational uh, evolutionary reason why the brain is doing this. Yeah. Right. And, and I think just as take a step back, why are the more of these conditions occurring now in the modern population? Because over the last couple of hundred years, we're not living according to our evolutionary inheritance. So we're surrounded by toxins, we're eating toxins, we're in polluted environments. So, and, and we're leading more stressful lives. So therefore, that background inflammation is always occurring. Yeah. Right. And so when we have that background inflammation, background stimulation of mass, mass cells, it means our system is primed to have a big response to something new that's come along. And that's why I believe that, you know, 70 to 80 percent of the conditions that now present themselves in a doctor's office are functional conditions where you know, traditional medicine is just going to treat the symptoms, but not really get to the root cause because it's in the electrical system, not the physical hardware, as it were. So these are software problems, not hardware problems. So walk us through your program and talk to us about, you know, some of the, the well, talk, us, talk to us about some of the research that you're doing. So what is your program? Okay, so our program is something we've spent 20 years developing. So I first started treating patients in 2001, very, uh, you know, a long time ago in my clinic, using the techniques that I had used. And obviously that worked for some people, but not all the people. So we refined and refined and refined. And then in 2007, we published an interactive DVD program. So this was the first kind of neuroplasticity brain retraining program. And we were able to reach a lot more patients than we could at our clinic. Um, and then we revamped it in 2019. And essentially, it's an, now an online program 
which people can join. And there's 15 interactive videos, about 20 audio exercises and a support group and weekly webinars. So we like to give patients, you know, a whole ecosystem of support as they recover. And the program is split into three aspects, the three R's of the Gupta program, as we call them. The first one and the core part is retraining the brain. That is the core unique aspect of the program. The second R is relaxing the nervous system. So we know from a neuroplasticity basis that the calmer the nervous system is in the brain, uh, the more neuroplastic it can become, um, or certainly the rewiring becomes easier yeah, than if you're stuck in a hypervigilant state. So uh, relaxing the nervous system is a very important part of that and stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system. And the third R, which is often negated or overlooked in modern medicine, is re-engaging with joy. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the power of actually a positive mindset of that, uh, you know, being able to engage the brain in uplifting positive experiences, you know, think of the work of Patch Adams and whatever, uh, and, and actually quite a lot of literature on this, that actually laughter, happiness, all of those things can really support uh, neuroplasticity and getting us out of stuck responses. So we look at that aspect as well. But the core of it is the brain retraining. And what we do is we teach a patient to recognize these unconscious signals. And then there's a specialized and unique seven step process that they go through each time they recognize that signaling. And through repetition, just like we talked about the phantom limb pain, through repetition and commitment, eventually the brain gets the message that we are no longer in danger. The symptoms in the body do not represent evidence of ongoing infection or in the case of mold illness and chemical sensitivities, that that mold or chemical does not represent a threat to our survival. So we gradually retrain the brain and then a person comes back to often they come back to 70, 80 percent health. And then guess what happens? They then go and throw themselves back into a busy, stressful lifestyle again, mm. yeah? because that's often one of the reasons they uh, more prone to these conditions in the first place. So we teach somebody to not just get well, but stay well. So then we look at some of the aspects of their personality, which may be impacting on their health and stopping them from engaging in self-care, being aware of when they're pushing themselves too hard. Then we get up, them up to 90, 95%. And then that final five, 10% is getting back gradually into normal life and doing the things that were, they were able to do before, but without increasing their stress levels. And then we get people you know, back to back to health. So that's a kind of overview of the program. And then in terms of our research that you asked me about. So we are very much research focused. So as you've mentioned, I published the hypothesis in Medical Hypothesis in 2002. Then we published a clinical audit in 2010 that was without a control group. And that found that in patients with ME-CFS after one year, uh, two thirds of patients reached an 80 to 100 percent recovery and 92 percent of patients made some kind of improvement. But there was no control. Um, then we were very lucky to get a randomized control trial published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine uh, late last year, 2020. And that. Uh, found that our treatment was far more effective than a relaxation control. So both groups of patients, these were fibromyalgia patients in Spain, they had an equal amount of um, practitioner time. And the control group, as I said, was relaxation techniques. And after just an they eight- had, though, They did have their baseline protocols continued in each group, and then they layered onto it your protocol or a relaxation technique, correct? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So it's treatment as usual, um, plus uh, 
either intervention. Yes, you're absolutely right. And so after an eight week intervention, now normally our program is a six month intervention, but after just an eight week intervention, there was a zero impact on fibromyalgia scores in the control group. Um, but there was close to a 40% reduction in fibromyalgia scores in the active Gupta program group. And also in terms of other areas, there was uh, close to a 50% reduction in pain, but only 9% in the control group. There was close to a halving of anxiety and depression in the active group, very low in the control group, and a close to a 50%, a 47% increase in perceived health in the active group, but only 16% in the control group. So this was a, a kind of groundbreaking result in the first randomized control trial ever published on a neuroplasticity program, which was very exciting. It's really and, exciting. <laughs> yeah. It's and, cool. um, you know, obviously we would encourage those patients to continue for six months because we say a minimum of yes. six months to really, really, you know, get fully well. So any future interventions, we'd hope to do a six month or a one year study to really see the longer term effects. And um, yeah, so. We are now looking for phase three trials in fibromyalgia, in ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, and many other conditions we know that seem to have good outcomes. And really, that's the, that's the future for this. And for us, we don't want to hold on to the IP. We're not saying this can only be the Gupta program. We want to prove this and then train everyone and anyone who's interested to deliver this at a primary or secondary care level as well. Um. Okay, so I was going to ask you about time. Yeah, it's amazing that they saw the turnaround in eight weeks because that really is just a drop and you say, you know, at least six months. So that's fascinating. It would be interesting actually to follow up. Do you have any plans or does the does the group who conducted this uh, 2020 study have any plans to see how this uh, the cohort is doing? Um, so this was a, a study where uh, it actually took a, a couple of years, two to three years to actually get it published. Sure. <laughs> so I okay. think it was actually conducted in 2016 with our old program, funny enough. Um, okay. But I certainly have offered to that team to say, let's do a larger study now, uh, now that we've had this published and hopefully get the funding for something like that. Um, but we're very open to collaborations across the world to do a larger study, you know, with hundreds of patients, um, because we think this is a really good option for patients. and. Yes. Um, Actually, the intervention is relatively cheap compared to, you know, many things sure. that people spend money on. Right. Labs, supplements, medications, et cetera, physician time and so forth. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. So in our show notes, folks, we will put um, all the, the links that you need to be able to uh, access uh, the Gupta program and Ashok uh, specifically. And so if, if some of the clinicians listening, I know that there are folks in university listening and, and who might be interested in jumping in uh, to conducting some research here, it, just make sure that you give us contact so, and you're open to uh, collaborating. Uh, yes, absolutely. Okay, okay, that fabulous. Great. And, and, and then, something, that, yeah, uh, something we'd like to offer to uh, your audience and your listeners um, who are clinicians. So if they are working with cohorts of patients, uh, we actually provide um, free access to the Gupta program for clinicians to take a look, see which patients may you know, be most appropriate for this type of intervention. Um, and so we can also include that in the show notes as well. Perfect. Yep, that would be fabulous. I, I you know, again, I just want to underscore that we to see a need of a need in clinical practice and 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 something that's increased I would say over my over my career you know I've been practicing medicine going on 20 years and and when I first started it, it I would say our interventions were a little bit more 
straightforward. And, uh, you know, and we got a little bit more bang for our buck um, and things are becoming more challenging. We're seeing, quote, tougher guts and, you know, maybe heightened intolerances and allergies. And, um, and I think it, I think it feeds into, you know, this piece being so essential. Um, in it, so in, in addition to, uh, to chronic fatigue, just conditions that are responsive in your experience? Um, yes. So um, I think that, uh, for instance, POTS, uh, we are getting good results with POTS, which often has crossovers with these types of, uh, these types of conditions. Um, then things like obviously long haul COVID, which is very big in the news right now. We're actually yes. starting uh, initiating a, a study on that as well, randomized control trial. Oh, and, then, and then any kind of sensitivity, so food, ke chemical sensitivities, electrical sensitivities. And then another big area is pain. So once someone has had their particular pain, um, like chronic unexplained pain, investigated, and there's no obvious organic cause, we find that we our program is highly effective for those kinds of things um, uh, as well. And then obviously the gut related things like SIBO, irritable bowel syndrome, and those kind of burnout related conditions, uh, we're also finding good results with those because you know so many of these conditions cross over. And we call all of these conditions collectively neuroimmune condition syndromes or NICs. That is our name for these types of conditions. And um, that's why there's so many crossovers of symptoms. You know, does someone have chronic fatigue syndrome with IBS or do they have IBS with chronic fatigue syndrome? Actually, underlying it, the underlying neurology is very similar. But the, the complexity comes from the range of downstream symptoms that then occur in each patient. And right. that will be down to the genetic and physiological vulnerability of each patient. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. So POTS, mast cell activation. Um, yes. And and what about Lyme and and other you know sometimes chronic Lyme I should say and you know sometimes mm. really difficult stealth infections. What have you seen? Yep, definitely we've had good results with Lyme and many uh, other stories on our site. You'll see from uh, previous Lyme experiences. And um, you know once again we see Lyme as a triggering uh, infection, but once this cycle starts occurring the yeah. Lyme ironically becomes an opportunistic infection that, that then may persist in the body but once we go through the retraining rebalance the entire system the our own immune system is the best uh, fighter of these opportunistic yeah. infections and is able to deal with them very easily and the same from a detoxification perspective that um, we know that detoxification is compromised but once we bring back the parasympathetic response we bring back balance, um, then the body, once again, is its own best detoxifier. Um, you know, well. it's absolutely true. So a friend of mine, um, Dr. Tom Salt, talks about, you know, for many of us, Lyme disease is a mild summer flu. You're sick for a couple of days, for many of us. And he, you know, and then there's those of us who are vulnerable to chronic Lyme, and those numbers seem to be, or other stealth infections, and those numbers seem to be sort of exponentially growing. Um, and his first intervention is also, you know, looking at autonomic nervous response. And I think, you know, again, I just think more and more of us are coming to needing these tools. Um, my question to you is, so for me as a functional medicine, uh, clinician, somebody who's dealing with biochemistry and so forth, it's a no brainer that I would concurrently be using the set of interventions 
uh, that I find effective. However, in your experience, and it, well, and in your 2020 study, they did treatment as usual and then layered on your program or the relaxation technique in the control group. In your experience, is that always required or could you say get somebody who's got, you know, a chronic stealth infection or mast cell activation or chronic fatigue? Well, you got better, you know, interestingly in your story with 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 your tools only, I'm assuming. But I mean, can can are is there a place for your um, that your program as a standalone intervention in these cases? I mean, have you have you gotten SIBO patients better or IBS patients? Anyway, speak to that. Um. This is a really good question, and I think that uh, it's too early to say. Certainly with our patients, um, they've been around the houses in terms of looking for solutions before they come to us often. Yeah. And they find that actually they use our program, they get better, and then all the supplements and things that they had been prescribed, they come off them without any change, you know, without any effect. So it's really difficult to say. Um, but, you know, we are open to understanding if those downstream interventions can support the upstream uh, interventions generally we find yes if we can if a patient can successfully deal with the upstream issues and is able to rebalance the system the body itself gets back into a, a normal healthy balance but not always you know no intervention is 100 percent effective of course and so you know once they use our program if there are some downstream issues afterwards that they want to investigate then they also go on that route as well so some patients don't need anything else some patients may require um, some extra investigation you know I want to throw I just you know I, I want to talk about adverse childhood experiences and and I actually want to throw in sort of a curve a curveball on this conversation and question from my own area of interest, I recently published a study looking at DNA changes in DNA methylation. Specifically, we were looking at biological aging. But if you get into the literature on epigenetics, you know you can see pretty profound influence in early childhood trauma, in utero exposures, and I one of my very favorite studies in the field of heritable epigenetics comes out of Emory University. Um, I think it was published in 2017, uh, and it was a, a, a mouse study where in the first generation, they exposed the mice to a bad odor plus mm -hmm pain plus a tail clamp. So bad, a smell plus tail clamp. And then they isolated these animals and did um, uh, IVF in subsequent generations and found that through the duration of the study, so two more generations, um, the bad odor elicited the fear of the subsequent pain. So they had the behavioral response. And then when they actually uh, looked at the brain, the, re the olfactor, so that particular receptor was hypomethylated in, in, this, in the subsequent generations, it was, which means it was turned on and anatomically it was actually larger. So that region of the brain became hyperplastic from previous generations which is mind blowing to me, you know, to see this going through. And we, and, and we know more studies are coming out in humans to show this heritability pattern, um, you know, sort of led by epigenetic changes, because clearly these aren't, you know, genetic mutations. These are epigenetic changes, which actually change physiology, anatomy and physiology. And it's just 
so extraordinary. And so this, the newer research coming down the pike does suggest this is happening um, in, in, uh, in humans and, you know, and there's, and there's a heritable portion, but there's also a portion where, where it's heritable within the being. So, you know, after subsequent cell division, so adverse childhood experience does influence us on down the line into adulthood. We know that there's an increased risk of illnesses and so on and so forth. Um, what, I mean, what are your thoughts? I, there's no doubt you're encountering, you know, probably some of what I'm talking about, um, whether, you know, you're thinking about it or articulating it or not. Or not. And I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering if you've thought in this direction at all and, 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 mm. and you know, just any kind of observations um, yes, I mean, I, I love this area of medicine, and I think it's you know it's we're just on the the you know really the, the beginning of us really understanding this this area, and absolutely, I think this is the idea of nature and nurture impacting on our vulnerability to illness is is really interesting. So I think that um, there is that idea of generational trauma um, as well, where actually what may have happened to our parents and our grandparents and our great grandparents may have an impact on who we are now right so obviously there is that inheritance that genetic inheritance but then how it expresses itself uh, or you know how much inflammation we get in the body or how much anxiety we experience will then be uh, i suppose changed by our childhood experiences yeah so we have the inheritance and we have then how much it expresses and i think that that similar pattern may occur with some of our physiology um, as well as the, you know, the emotional side as well. So if we have more of those adverse childhood experiences, which actually can start in the womb itself, right. a secondary impact can be on the factory setting of the amygdala itself. And there's some, yes, some yes, evidence yes. to support this. So, uh, you know, our ch the mental and emotional state of the mother Maybe impacting not only at the genetic level, but also in the, the kind of the structure of the amygdala and its development. And then the experience of childbirth can impact on the amygdala. And then the adverse childhood experiences can impact on its um, reactivity, um, as well as the, you know, the other effects. So piecing this all together, it is really like a big jigsaw puzzle. But what we do know is that people who've had adverse childhood experiences are three to four times more likely, sometimes more, to experience you know, chronic illness later in life. And that's yeah. really a public health emergency um, for the research to go into that area and understand why. And yeah. I believe that more and more people are experiencing generational anxiety and trauma, more people experiencing anxiety in general because of the, the modern way that we're living. We're not living according to, uh, you know, things that would, we're, we're almost programming people to grow up anxious and depressed, and especially yes. with Gen, Gen Z right now, I mean, I I, I feel for them. Uh, the levels of anxiety they're experiencing are sixty to seventy percent of you know Gen Zs and and teenagers are experiencing regular anxiety. I mean, how has society come to that? And unfortunately, we as practitioners will see this 10, 20, 30 years down the line when they end up with these types of chronic conditions because the system has become primed to become defensive versus healthily operational is the way yes. i see yes 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 the threshold for response is dropped actually moshe saf who was a one an author on our on our paper um did have did this the seminal research in this area looking at animals um who were exposed to either in utero stress or early life stress having um you know their glucocorticoid system just 
hyper vigilant, basically, because mm -hmm. of that stress for later on. And I think that really is what you're describing. I so we're we need so we need to take this retraining very seriously. And it and and as far as our our you know just where it is in in our in our interventions, it needs to just be front and center. I think as well as sort of granting it the respect that it needs. Mm -hmm. um, we can throw out, you know, you just threw out a handful of really profound sort of disturbing statistics with Gen, Gen Z and the, and, and the extent of anxiety. Um, but we need to really train our vision on it and prioritize that and give people the room to do the work. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. And the important part of this is a shift in the zeitgeist. Yeah, we need a right. shift in how we are approaching healthcare in general. And that is beginning to happen. And it's slow because it's like moving a big tanker. Um, but, so, you know, as the functional medicine doctors are, you know, in the right place and, and doing the right thing, I believe here, which is we're treating the whole person. We're treating them holistically and we are treating them at a mental, physical, emotional and spiritual level which is something yes. that in Eastern medicine was very common. Yes. My caution always is that sometimes in uh, modern alternative medicine or complementary medicine, we can become just as reductionist as mainstream medicine by saying, right, we've done this test, which shows this, therefore you have this. And, and just focusing purely on, once again, certain you know, levels of hormones, neurotransmitters, enzymes, and just treating at that level. And it's important at the same time to treat at the holistic level. Yes. Um, because otherwise some they may get better temporarily but some other stress will come in their lives and they'll go back to right back to the, where they were before and i'm sure many of us see that where we'll get recurring patients who feel better for a while but then something's happened in their life a year later or two years later and they'll they'll come back yes. because um the overall skills of being able to balance our nervous system and keep it at that state is an important uh, you know factor in long term in, in long-term health i want to just say you know in our just in you know, my closing comments, um, A, this is just, this has been a fabulous, such an important conversation, but I want to say this extends beyond medicine um, into, into how we're living, <laughs> you know, just yeah. to kind of bring us full circle. This is well beyond the, you know, patient-physician encounter um, into, and into our homes and our connections and our communities and how we're choosing to actually interpret life. <laughs> yeah, so. and this, this comes down to society's values i mean we, we can get very deep <laughs> and yeah. profound here but ultimately our modern societies are based on unconscious values which have been based on the human ego and dare i say it, the male ego um, and those values have become unconsciously ingrained which is survival of the fittest uh, the strongest will do well uh, and survive uh, or you know our aim and mission is to increase gdp of the economy and for each of us to earn as much money as possible, which is obviously plundering the planet and causing so much environmental chaos. And so those values don't fit well with our own evolutionary inheritance, which actually it means that we're pushing our bodies mentally, physically, emotionally far harder than they are used to, which is then what we're seeing in, in the, 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 uh, the consulting room. And so that whole model of driving people towards um, more and more and more, whether that's more physical items in their lives or more money or all of this, is that societal set of values, which ultimately is causing the health issues we're seeing, the burnout, the, the physical uh, illness. Yes. And so it, at the moment, it's 
responsibility of each individual to recognize that and jump out of that game and prioritize their own health. But ultimately, society itself, governments themselves have to re, um, how can we put it, refocus the priorities of society towards well-being and happiness and community cohesion and all of those good things that ultimately come from a space of love versus a face of a space of fear and ego. Yeah, a recalibration. I, I would argue too that it needs to really begin with us individually and and perhaps at home with our families. Um, thank you so much for joining me. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thank you. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making new frontiers in functional medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, These kind of comments will promote new frontiers in functional medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.